happy Christmas and blessed Christmas to you. I know um, uh, the celebrations were here yesterday's service. I was over at Bankstown, so I wasn't able to see uh, you guys here or for those who are watching online. Um, so yeah, we really uh, want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Also recognizing uh, it was a very tough Christmas, um, even for those of us who managed to get together with our families and friends and celebrate. Um, I know as many people who had to cancel celebrations because of COVID, because of um, isolation, because they're waiting for test results. Um, and it must have been so disappointing for, for those, especially if you're at home and you've had to cancel plans. Our thoughts are with you. Um, but isn't it great that Christmas isn't just about what we do? It's actually ultimately about what God has done for us. So um, with that in mind, let me pray, and then we'll get into today's um, Boxing Day sermon, which is probably one I only do once every however many years it takes for it to become a Sunday again. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that even when our plans fail, yours doesn't. Thank you for the eternal, unshakable plan that came about 2,000 years ago when Christ was born into this world, and the plan that will be one day completely fulfilled when he returns for us and makes all things new. We look forward to that day. We pray that in the meantime, we might wait well and that you might speak powerfully through your word, even on this odd day that most of us don't know what to do with called Boxing Day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what is Boxing Day? What is Boxing Day? I wonder how many of you know that what the origins or the true meaning of Boxing Day is. Is it, number one, the day after Christmas when we dispose of all the boxes from the presents we received? Or is it, number two, a traditional day stemming from 19th century England when boxing matches were held the day after Christmas? Or is it, number three, just a great public holiday bonus day off to watch the cricket if you're into cricket? Which one is it? Well, the answer is, of course, none of them. Ha ah, tricked you. Um, the truth is, Boxing Day originated sometime in the 19th century, but it has nothing to do with boxing matches, and a couple of different explanations that experts will argue about. Um, it could be, uh, at that time, when churches, the day after Christmas, was, oh, would open up their charity boxes so that the poor um, could get money and, and get charity and help. Or the second option is that the upper classes in the 19th century, England especially, would allow their workers to go home the day after Christmas and they would give their workers gifts of food and clothing and boxes, hampers, in order to thank them for their service all year. Now, experts aren't really sure which one it is. And if you Google, you might get one of the two. Now, whether or not it's A or B, I guess... What's in common is pretty clear, isn't it? What's in common of the purpose of Boxing Day, your origins? Well, Boxing Day, no matter whether you go for A or B, Boxing Day was a day for those who had to share their generosity with those who didn't have, yeah? It, whether it's the upper classes providing for the working classes or the rich or the churches to give to the poor, it was about sharing, it was about generosity, which is, when you realize that, it's pretty sad, isn't it? What does Boxing Day become? Now, honestly, honestly, just be honest, because our service starts a bit later, 11 o'clock, most of you have been up, maybe for a few hours before you came to church. How many of you already looked online or clicked on an ad for Boxing Day sales already this morning? Come on, honest. Wow, that's far fewer of you than I thought. Or you're just very, very good liars. Um, I got to admit, I, I already did click on Boxing Day sales, um, because that's what Boxing Day has become, Right? It's actually become a day for more of me, more for me. 
So consumerism, Boxing Day sales, huge business. There's more, or it's more me time, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a public holiday. You get another day off tomorrow. Um, it's a day to, to, to enjoy cricket, to enjoy the beach, enjoy family. And so you see, a day that was originally um, there to promote justice and equity and, and compassion and appreciation has actually turned inwards, hasn't it? That's what Boxing Day has become. Well, today I want us to recover the spirit of Boxing Day. And the reason is, you know, not just because it has origins, it's important, but because followers of Jesus, of all people, I mean, shouldn't we be the people who lived out the spirit of Boxing Day, not just on Boxing Day, but every day, personally and corporately as a church? Yeah, that really should characterize us, right? So, a couple of points. Firstly, let's look at what the Bible says. Now, gospel-believing churches and Christians in the West especially, we have, let's admit it, we have a pretty big blind spot when it comes to helping the poor and social justice. Yeah? It tends to be the more liberal churches, the theologically liberal churches, churches that actually deny the central heart of the gospel and the Bible, they tend to be more attuned to social justice. Whereas we kind of have, you know, we do it, but it's a bit, of, a bit token. That's very different, of course, to the Christian church in the first century. Because you read about the historical accounts, they impacted society in such a big way in, in ancient Rome because of the church's unique desire and the way that they helped the poor, no matter who they were. Whereas today, it's mostly dropped off our radars. But what does the Bible actually say? Let's have a look at some really important Bible passages. In Micah 6, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Zechariah, the next one, spells that out a little bit more. This is what the Lord Almighty says, Administer true justice. There's that word again, justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien, i.e. the immigrant, or the poor. And why does God command all this? It's because it's consistent with who He is, His own character. Look at Psalm 146. God upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Now, I want you to notice the word justice there, because what's really interesting is when the Bible talks about justice, it talks about justice in a bigger and fuller way than we do. Like, what do you think of? We usually think of justice primarily in terms of the negative, as in you're doing justice when you're not being unjust, okay? Or you're doing justice when you're not oppressing someone, when you're not being unfair. That's how we usually think of justice. But then we have another word, don't we, for stuff done in the positive. So when you do positive stuff for someone, it's charity, right? It's compassion, giving to the poor. That's charity and compassion. We don't usually categorize that as a thing of justice. But the problem is, when we think of it in terms of just the positive, the charity and compassion, it then becomes an optional extra. Like you could be not charitable, but be just in our way of thinking, yeah? A person may not give a lot of money, may not be generous, but you couldn't say they're unjust just because they don't do that, right? But you see, in the Bible, you see those verses? Justice goes hand in hand with mercy. In the Bible, the idea of justice actually includes both. The negative, don't oppress, and the positive, giving and being generous. Have a look at Isaiah 58. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. And then look at the next verse. 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor wandering around with, a wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? How different is that to me and you? I, I see giving money to the poor as a good deed on top of what is required of me. The Bible sees sharing our wealth not as charity, but as justice. Which means when we fail to do that, it's actually an act of injustice. Why is that? Why is helping the poor, helping the vulnerable, being generous, part and parcel of the godly and just life? Well, it's because of the Bible's view of God creating us in His image, created us to all be equal, right? God created us all to be equal, and there's a Bible word Translated as peace in the Old Testament, it's the word shalom in Hebrew. Shalom means more than peace, because when we think of peace, we think of absence of war. No war is peace. No fighting is peace. When the Bible talks about shalom peace, it means wholeness or interconnectedness. All right? That's what God created us, to be equal, interconnected, at peace, whole, as humanity Now, of course, sin entered the world through the fall, and that shalom was broken. But what God wants His people to experience, and what He set up in His kingdom, is a restored shalom. That's what Jesus came to restore. Shalom, peace, wholeness. And that's why in the Old Testament, which is a shadow of Jesus' kingdom, God says, if you did everything right, there would be no poor people among you, the people of Israel, God's Old Testament people. And of course, the New Testament reality is is the same. The message is the same. Jesus has come to restore from our brokenness, restore the interconnectedness, the shalom of creation. And so his people need to demonstrate that inside and outside. And, um, And so Jesus, when he, that day that we read about in Luke 4, he took up the scroll of Isaiah. Look what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come and he came to proclaim shalom, peace, to restore everything that God has come to restore in our brokenness. And that's why for the early Christians, when they told the good news of Jesus with words, they also followed it up with deeds. Good news for the poor. So that's what the Bible says. How does the gospel change us? Now, I gather that none of this is going to be new to most of us. But the thing is, even though we kind of believe it, and I'm sure everyone will be here saying, uh, yeah, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, be like, yeah, this is me, I, I want this. We got some major problems, don't we, anytime the poor and social justice is preached about. And I, and I want to suggest to you, there's a problem of motivation, there's a problem of guilt. Okay? I mean, sorry, the problem of a motivation and the problem of objections. Firstly, the problem of motivations. Um, I think there's kind of three camps, basically. Uh, some of us are motivated by guilt. Okay? Uh, we feel guilty, we see the poor, and we think, yeah, we should give. Now, the consequence, but if you're motivated primarily by guilt, the problem is that it's going to be short bursts of compassion, isn't it? Right? And then at some point, you're going to give up because the bar is set way too high. Right? I feel guilty, but I feel guilty all the time. Um, And I give, but I can't give enough. And so I stop, and I just learn to deal with the guilt feelings. Yeah, that's one of the problems. Our motivation is guilt. Another motivation 
that doesn't end up anywhere is self-righteousness. That is, I do this because it makes me feel better. It makes me a better Christian. I can then look down on others who don't. Yeah? Humble brag about the giving that I do. The problem is then, your giving will only be what's convenient for you. That won't drive you very far to give above and beyond. You're kind of more busy looking sideways at what other people think. And at some point, you're just only going to give so much. And it's ultimately about yourself. And the third motivation is I think for a lot of us, we're just simply not very motivated at all. Okay? Another set of problems is, is, is our objections. That is, when it comes to giving to the poor, social justice, if you're like me, then you're asking some pretty common questions. The first kind of question, objection is, well, what if the person I'm helping is the cause of their own poverty? They're addicted to gambling. They waste it all on the pokies. It's their problem, right? We've got a good social welfare system. If they got themselves into this trouble, why should I, anyone, help them? Second objection, what if they abuse my help? I mean, what if I give them some money and they end up going to the pokies again? Third objection, well, I can't, I can't help everyone, can I? Right? This is a systemic, economic, social problem that's much bigger than I can manage. Now, I reckon you take some of these motivation problems, you take some of these objections, you put them all together, and again, I'm in this basket. If you're like me, then even after reading books and sermons and teaching and watching those ads on TV about the hungry and the poor, most Christians will leave a sermon like this and not make any lasting change. Isn't that right? Well, the solution to all of this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Like we've been looking at the last few weeks, right? The gospel, the good news of Jesus actually changes everything. So I want you to notice the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, his logic on why we give to the poor. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And it's tapping into some, something really, really important that's much more than just guilt, isn't it? It's not saying, oh, look, Jesus died for you and you should feel guilty about that and therefore you should do something. No, 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 it's not talking about that. It's saying if you've experienced God's grace, God's generosity, then something's going to happen from within to cause you to want to pass on or pay forward or overflow with that grace. In other words, if we are inactive because of our motivation and objections, then there's actually something lacking in our experience of God's grace. Do you see? Like this should be something so natural that those who've received will overflow with a desire to give. And so it's really fitting that Boxing Day is after Christmas Day. Because what is Christmas all about? God's generosity in giving us His very own precious Son, Jesus. And shouldn't that overflow to the poor and vulnerable around us? Now you get this and your motivation becomes neither guilt nor self-righteousness. Because what's happening here in the Gospel Ike read out earlier, Ephesians chapter 2, during our confession. Ephesians 2 said, when God found us, what were we like? 
Like, honestly, what were we like in the Bible's view of us? It says we were dead in our sins. That we were dead. Spiritually, we were as bankrupt and as poor as you could be. Because we were dead. And it was then that Jesus showed us his grace. He brought the dead to life. And Jesus makes us right with him through his death on the cross in our place. Not because we are righteous, but because he is righteous. He gives us the gift of relationship with God while we were dead. Right? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is great news. And before everything else, this is something we hope that you will experience and want to experience. And please find out more, especially at this time. But coming back to motivation, you see, if you've been shown such immense grace by God, dead in transgressions, raised to life through Jesus, made right with God when we were his enemies, then when you see the poor, what are you going to see? You're going to see a mirror of yourself. Isn't that right? When you see the poor, you're going to see, well, this person is economically and probably spiritually in the same place as I was spiritually. The actually the only poverty that really matters, that really damages, that has eternal consequences is spiritual poverty. And what did God do for me in my spiritual poverty? He made me rich by giving me Jesus. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you if you are poor in spirit. If you recognize the poverty of where you are spiritually without him, you're blessed. Because then you start understanding what it is to look on others and see, there but the grace of God, but for the grace of God, there go I. Um, It's really interesting that we we live in the southwest, or in Kingsgrove is probably the inner southwest, but out in Bankstown where we are also, um, we've got a lot more migrant communities, don't we, where we are. And especially as you go towards the southwest, the migrant communities, it's interesting how they see the refugee issue very differently to non-migrants. In the last few decades, there's been a lot of rhetoric about protecting our borders and all that kind of stuff. But you talk to most migrants, and they're just softer towards refugees. A lot of them because they are the kids of refugees. But even if you're the kids of professional migrants, we see ourselves in them, don't we, in some way? We see ourselves in them and our parents who came to this country and had to work their butt offs with no English. And we realize that that was like us. That could have been us. It's the same spiritually, right? If we understand what God has done for us, we start seeing ourselves in the materially poor because material poverty is just a reflection of spiritual poverty that we all suffer from. Okay, so that's motivation. What about objections? What does the gospel do to our objections? Well, what about the objection? Well, they're the cause of their own poverty. Well, here's the thing. Poverty is a complex issue. I mean, yes, people have gambling, addiction problems that cause poverty, poverty, but these problems are very social, educational, and economically, systemically related. But let's come back to the gospel anyway. You know, in the gospel, who is responsible for, my, for your spiritual poverty, for my spiritual poverty? It's ourselves. And what does God do? Does God wait for us to fix our lives up first before showing us grace? Does he say, oh, no, I'm not going to help you spiritually, because you're the cause of your own poverty, spirit. No, no, no. Grace comes in the midst of our poverty when we were dead in transgressions. And in fact, it's only grace that can actually motivate you to 
change your life afterwards as well, isn't it? Or what about the objection, well, what if I give and they abuse my help? Well, again, I mean, that's, that's a real issue, and it doesn't mean that we, we give foolishly. But have a think about the issue itself. Did Jesus offer salvation only for those who would be grateful for it? Right? I mean, not everyone gets saved, right? That's what the New Testament says. But the offer does go out to everyone, even for those he knows would abuse it. And how about for those who have accepted God's grace, God's generosity? Have you ever in your life as a follower of Jesus taken his generosity for granted? Have you ever sinned knowingly, even though you know it's sinful, because you know he'll forgive me anyway? We do that all the time, don't we? It doesn't stop God from showing us grace, even though he knew we would abuse it. What about the third objection? Well, I can't help everyone. It's a big world. Well, it's true. You can't help everyone, but you can help some. Uh, Jesus didn't help everyone either. He didn't heal everyone in Judea, Galilee, but he healed everyone who came to him. Now, the church is much bigger than individuals, but it does start with individuals, right? I mean, if God can change us individually, then He can begin to change society through us corporately. And that's certainly what happened in the early church in the first few centuries. Um, Let me break it all down with an example. Um, In in Pastor Tim Keller's church in New York City, there was an example of uh, their church using, um, uh, helping out uh, a single mother of four, um, with money, helping to pay her bills and all that kind of stuff. Um, but here's the thing, right? They discovered that instead of um, paying her bills, she left a lot of her bills unpaid and used the money that the church had given her to buy toys and to go out to restaurants for her kids, with her kids. Now, I wonder what you would do at this point. I know what we would be tempted to do as a church at this point. It'd be like, okay, obviously she's, taking, she's abusing her, she's not really getting help. Let's just cut off the funding. Well, they did feel it was a problem, but they decided, no, 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 we, we're not going to just cut it off. Let's dig deeper. Let's talk to her. Let's find out why she was misusing the charity, the funds. And they found out why. It was because this single mother of four felt so guilty that her kids missed out, that her kids never got to have the toys that her kids' friends had, that her kids would never get to go out to a diner and have a meal. And so rather than paying the bills that she knows she should and has to, she wanted her kids to have a little bit more to make them happy. Now, whether you agree with her or not, it's important to see that there are reasons, deeper reasons than just... So what did they do? This church, well, they decided, well, let's help her in a deeper way. Let's not just give her money and just leave it with her. Let's help her manage her finances. So they did that. Let's help her by providing mentors for her kids so her kids wouldn't miss out in other ways. And maybe these mentors would also work out how to kind of adopt these kids. Let's help her become self-sufficient. And they did all that. And then she was slowly able to come out of her economic rut. Yeah, that's a good example, isn't it? It's not doing everything. In some ways, she did abuse the help. She, was, she may have been cause of her own Poverty or, or, or may have been circumstance, doesn't really matter. But the point is, their generosity was far more than just skin deep. It reflected the kind of persistent generosity that God shows to us. So, final point, how, could, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? This is it, right? Like, it's really easy to walk away from the sermon, do nothing. I suggest we think about head, heart, and hands. 
So let's start with our thinking, our heads. One of the most important things to remember is, of course, the Bible sees everything that you have, everything that we have, as given to you as a steward, to steward, not to own, but to steward, okay? So I, you, we are stewards of all that God gives us. We don't own it. Everything belongs to God, but we're to steward it. And so we are to be blessing others as we ourselves are blessed. Now, at this point, again, some people really object to this. Like, you mean, I, how can you say that none of this is mine? I mean, I worked hard for my money. I studied years, and I was able to get the job that I really want. I pursued it, I, my career. I gave up time and energy, and I'm able to afford all these things because of my hard work. Well, I get that. But here's the thing. I wonder if you've ever thought about it. If you were born exactly the same you born in a different country or in a different time, or born in a third world country somewhere in Africa or Southeast Asia, you put in the same amount of hard work, would it result in the same amount of wealth that you enjoy today? Because there are people who work far harder than you and me. And because of the country they were born in, because of the place or the time they lived in, none of that hard work translated or can translate into wealth. Were you responsible for the country you were born in, for the time you were born in, for the family you were born in? Right? Everything that we have, every opportunity, educational, otherwise, has been given to us by God. We don't own it. We are but stewards. And so in terms of our thinking, we got to keep realizing the more that we've been given, the more that we've been blessed, the more I've got now to bless others. Again, this is the logic of Christmas and Boxing Day. God gives so that we can pass it on. Now, I think it's a huge rebuke, isn't it? Uh, You guys heard of Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, some of the mega wealthiest people in the world. They've got it together with other mega wealthy people, and they've decided that when they die, they will leave nothing, right? No massive inheritance for their kids, not because they want to uh, to spend it all themselves, but because they were committed to giving it all away to charity, Buffett, Gates are some of the most charitable people. They put Christians to shame in terms of how charitable they are, all right? Now, you might be thinking, oh, because they're mega wealthy. If I was mega wealthy, I'd be giving that much. Well, no, if you're not giving that much with what you have now, you're not going to give that much when you're mega wealthy. And it, it puts me to shame to think that God is willing to... I want God to bless Bill Gates and Warren Buffett more than I want him to bless us. Because when he blesses Gates and Buffett, they give it away. When he blesses us, we hoard. That's a big rebuke, isn't it? All right, how about our hearts? Well, it it comes to the gospel, right? How often do I let the, the truths of the gospel soften my heart? Really reckon with the fact that I, but for God's grace, and am a dead sinner. And by the way, this is why we gather for church at least weekly is important. Because when we, when we come together and we do things like confession and we sing those songs, we're reminded of the good news of Jesus. It's not just more food for our head, it's experiencing afresh every week the reality of the gospel in our lives. See, when I feel hardened towards the needy, I need God to soften my heart so I'm not feeling self-righteous, so I don't think I'm better than them. 
I need God to remind me of His grace and the gospel. And then finally, hands. Well, let me give you three suggestions, and they're only going to be short three suggestions. The first one is, take baby steps. Like, just think about what you're doing, and just take one little step more than that. So, if currently, none of your giving or generosity at all goes to the poor. Okay, I'm not talking about your, if you're, if you're a, a member of SWEC and your financial commitment to this church and, you know, um, what, what, what you could think of as a tithe, all right? right things set apart just for the, the work of the gospel in the church. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about stuff on top of that. If you currently don't give, share anything to the poor or the vulnerable, whether people you know or more likely people you don't know, why don't you just give a one-off, just today? Just think, I'm going to find a good charity, especially now Christmas is over, there's going to be lots of need. I'm just going to just do a one-off. That's one baby step. Or maybe you, you already do give the one-offs every so often. Well, why not change that to giving regularly? That's another baby step for you. Um, if you sponsor a child, for example, with Compassion or World Vision, why not think about saving up or being able to sponsor one more? this year. Right? Take a baby step, whatever that is. Just one little step ahead of what you're doing. Um, second one is, ask yourself, what do I have that others don't? And, and, and then how can I share it? And I want you here to, to know it's not just money. Right? In some sense, money is easy. Right? It, it's far easier to give a few bucks here and there. But think about all, all the things you do have, other resources at your disposal. You have a home, or maybe you have education, or you have transport, or you have gifts and talents, or you have friends and social influence. And then think of someone who doesn't have that. All of those things I listed and more. Is there someone that you can share some of that with, what you have for someone else? I have a car. I can drive people around. Who's someone who doesn't? Maybe I can share with them. Like something simple like that. And then thirdly, to ask, what is my sphere of influence, okay? You can't help everyone, of course, but God has placed us all in specific places for a reason. So who are the underprivileged and vulnerable people that I, where I am, can especially help? Let me just talk to us as a collective. Most of us are children or are first-generation migrants or children of, of migrants, you know, if you are a child of a migrant, and so it's a lot of us now, or you're a second-generation migrant, you have so much that you can do to be a blessing to newer migrants. Like, it should fall on us, shouldn't it? To help them find work, to learn English, to give them a home away from home. And one of the things that we want to really explore in the next year or so with our church at SWEC, particularly um, where we are in Bankstown, our, next, our other congregation, and, and it doesn't mean that those at Kingsgrove can't be involved. In fact, we're one church and we want to mobilize people. We, we want to think about how we can teach ESL, how we can connect with newer migrants in that area, how we can, um, when there's a university built across the road from where we meet now, how we can think about reaching out and helping out and being a home and welcoming international students. And that may be something that you might want to be involved in. That's our sphere of influence. Let's get the band up. Get ready to sing. Let's just keep in mind what Boxing Day is all about. Right? It's actually about the gospel, okay? 
It's about the gospel. True generosity reflects what we understand of the gospel. So when we give, let's do it without thought of payback or reward, right? not just because you get a return favor or praise or tax deductibility. I'll only give to the charities that give me tax deductibility. And it's not about that, is it? And the gospel encourages us, urges us to give when it really costs us, right? when it's uncomfortable for us. I pray that God's grace in our lives may actually do that through us for our very needy world. Let's pray. Father God, we're reminded today through the message of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, what he's done for us, your incredible generosity. Father, I I can't change my life, let alone the lives of the people listening here. It's so easy to walk away from this and just be hardened. So Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would powerfully fill us with a greater sense of your generosity and grace that will overflow, especially in times of great need, which is what we're in right now. Not just material need, but emotional need, spiritual need. Help us to be people who reach out with the hands and the heart and the mind of Jesus. Amen.